I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let me welcome everybody to the Unpressed Podcast today. And we have a friend calling in from Orlando, Florida, and his name is Brandon Wolf. He was a Pulse nightclub survivor. And I want to welcome Brandon to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. So what's going on in your world seven years later? Yeah, seven years later, and it feels both like yesterday and also like a lifetime ago. There's been a lot that's happened over the last almost, I guess, nearly a decade now. You know, I I still grieve the loss of my friends every day, the people who went with me to the club that night and never made it home to say goodbye to their families. I have had a career change at the time I was working at Starbucks when the shooting happened. And and now I work full-time in the LGBTQ civil rights movement. I uh, do a lot of work on gun violence prevention issues. And the fight certainly is intense here in the state of Florida right now. So uh, it has felt over the last couple of years like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be doing the work I'm supposed to be doing. When you say this is felt in Florida, what do, you, what do you mean by that when you're an advocate for what you do? Well, you know, I think if you ask people in the LGBTQ community, if you ask people who are gun violence prevention advocates what it feels like to be on the ground in Florida right now, I think they tell you it's very difficult. It is difficult because we have a political climate that, quite frankly, demonizes LGBTQ people, demonizes marginalized communities in service to political ambitions. And as a result, it can be very difficult to do the work that we do every day, not only to amplify the voices of those who don't always have their voices heard, also to do the good work in the community of trying to move uh, the state and the country forward, and at the same time, performing services, mutual aid, so that we can get people access to what they need. We have tens of thousands of trans adults, for instance, who lost access to healthcare in the last couple of months. And a big part of our work has been trying to get them the resources they need so they can get this, the healthcare they've been using for, in some cases, decades. So the work is really difficult on a number of fronts. I think that's a result of the political climate that we're feeling here in the state of Florida. But as I mentioned, I'm really honored to be able to do that work every day. I'll say this about the insurance. I'm about to lose my insurance because the shit is expensive. Where did the lines get blurred? I mean, at the end of the day, we're all people. I think we all have the same sensibilities. You know, lifestyles are different. You know, and when you're in a, a political environment that involves your group and in Florida, I mean, where did the lines get blurred? I mean, as far as the financial part that is kind of driven by the political process. Well, I think if I understand the question correctly, it's, it's you know, what role do do we all play in, in sort of advancing things together and, and working together to make life easier for one another? That's the whole purpose, by the way, of living in a society. If we wanted to try to go it alone, the human race probably wouldn't be here. We decided a very long time ago that forging a path together was probably going to be easier and more successful than forging a million or a billion individual paths all by ourselves. So, um, part of the the question about how to live in a society is how do you live in a society effectively alongside other people, given that they don't have the same lived experience as you, they don't have the same needs as you, they don't see the world the same way as you. And I 
just firmly believe that that's what makes us stronger. That's what makes our species stronger is our diversity of lived experience, is our diversity of perspectives and talents. And so the question in terms of how do we address the very real issues that are happening, not just inside the LGBTQ community, but for a lot of people, you just mentioned your own health insurance going up and that, you know, being a, a struggle. I think we start from a from a foundation of freedom that we ask ourselves, does freedom actually mean something to us? Is it a value that we believe is worth defending? Is it something we think is unconditional? Do we offer it to all people in this country? And what, and what does offering access to that freedom actually look like? And so for me, I think every day that I go to work, that I I get to do the things that I'm doing is grounded in this belief that people should be free to be who they are, to dress how they want to dress, to love who they want to love, to live how they want to live, and be given access to the American dream, an opportunity to thrive in this country. What you want to wear. I mean, is there dictation about what you wear in Florida? I, there's no law that says you can't wear what you want to wear, but there are certainly spaces where we see gender expression being policed. For instance, you think about the bathroom ban uh, that was just recently passed, a bill, by the way, that in 2016, a very similar bill tanked the North Carolina economy almost overnight. Florida passes its own version of this ban on transgender people using the bathroom. And the question becomes, how do you enforce it? Well, you enforce it by empowering people to police gender expression in public restrooms. You you know, say to someone, if you feel uncomfortable because someone doesn't look like they belong in a certain space, you can now aggressively confront them, challenge them, call the police on them, and force them to prove that they belong in that space. So suddenly, you've, you see viral videos from not just Florida, but around the country, where people go into a space like a bathroom, and they're being confronted angrily by someone with a phone in their hand because they have a short haircut, because they're wearing pants instead of a skirt, because they don't seem to fit the idea of what that person thinks should be in that space. So while no, there is no specific law that dictates what people should be wearing at any given time, there is a culture of policing expression that happens when you pass laws that are vague, that are difficult to enforce, and essentially have a component in them that empowers people to to call each other out. But I interviewed this guy, Charles Bush. Charles Bush is, I don't know, he had the longest running comedy on Broadway, he had a lot of uh, plays off Broadway. I mean, he trained pretty much all the drag queens from RuPaul to any of the big celebrities were in Charles's class. And one thing that I thought, and we dug into his, we haven't released the episode yet, but we dug into his life. And I thought his story could be an inspiration for everybody in a way, because he was a pure source talent. Gay, grew up in the New York city area, had been in the city his whole life. Because he was such a great talent and a pure source, he lived his life through his talent. And that's all he thought about. And he said something to me. He said, you know, he never really worried about any of these outside narratives, you know, were affecting the gay community at the time. He said, you know, he went through AIDS. He said he stayed true to his craft, true to his art form. And he said, you know, he would be in a dresser, go into a dressing room, and he would look up, and he said, there's Carol Burnett. What do you think about that is where, you know, in this day and time, I think, created so many micro-narratives. How can we cut down on the micro-narratives to, to help people come closer together and look at a Charles Bush story and try to understand that as a inspiration? Does that make sense? I think so, yeah. You know, I would say uh, it is inspirational to hear about someone who's so 
incredibly talented that they're able to move in the world and people see them for their talent. And I think I would argue that I want everyone to experience that privilege, right? Some people during the HIV and AIDS crisis lost their lives because we had a government that refused to see that the crisis was real. They refused to acknowledge that it was ravaging the LGBTQ community. And so those people did not have the privilege of being able to ignore the very real systemic structural sort of barriers to success that existed, right? The people who wanted to get married and and experience love in that way couldn't ignore the fact that there was a time when this country didn't allow them to do that legally, right? That was not something they could just choose to ignore. In some ways, I think, you know, we move as human beings every day. I don't walk into the street and first introduce myself as a gay man. I introduce myself as Brandon and all of the things that come with that, right? All the things I'm proud of. I certainly do work that allows me to interact around the things I think I'm very talented at. And there there are very real ways that people interact with the world around them and specifically with infrastructure, with government structures, with society based on who they are and the way that the world may perceive them. I think the question of how we get to a place where we see each other more fully is by sharing those stories. I think there's not a world where we can just force everyone to be seen as homogenous, where we can just erase people's individual experiences or identities or the ways in which they see the world. Because again, one of our greatest strengths is the fact that when we bring those perspectives to the table, we create this more well-rounded picture, right? And the fact that I've lived a different life than you have allows us to have a robust conversation. It allows us to understand each other and maybe a different world through each other's eyes. So I think we have to hold on to that. We have to celebrate people's lived experiences. We have to celebrate their uniqueness, their identities, while also being willing to acknowledge that we are all at the end of the day human and that that is the tie that binds us. And I do think we have to get to a place where we care about each other on a very human level, where we're not thinking about trying to step on each other's backs or using those individual identities or experiences as cudgels against one another or trying to pull each other apart at those seams, but understanding that those seams are the places that stitch us together and being really invested in our collective success, knowing that I do better when you do better, that we all do better when every one of us individually does better. And so I think if we can get to that place, while not forcing us to be a homogenous society that doesn't see difference or individuality, I think that's the sweet spot. And I looked at this another way, too, because I was thinking about it, too, is like, if Charles is such a pure source talent, great writer, he would toy with the TV networks, right? He could go in, write a show, sell the show. But he knew that when his writing got to the executives, he knew that his show would be diluted, you know, because you got 20 people in a room, they're going to, you know, kind of put their opinion to it and dilute that narrative now. But they would, they would, they would buy the show, go into development, give him the money for the development. But he knew it would never be greenlit because of the dilution. You think about God and so forth, and, and giving a guy such a pure source talent. If everybody looked at everybody as a talent and just looked at their abilities from a pure source, and God gave this guy this type of talent, really the narrative around the talent doesn't really matter. And that's kind of reverse engineering this whole mindset because that's what created his success. If you have great talent and you can create success through that talent, it doesn't matter if you're gay, you're white, you're black, whatever it is, I don't think it really matters. I think if if there's a way we could maybe reteach our kids that kind of ideology, maybe that dissolves some of these 
cutting narratives that try to put people in a corner or put them in a box or so forth. I mean, what would you think about that perspective? Because that's something I've never heard before. I think we're sort of talking about the same thing in that, you know, we do have to teach young people that the value they bring to the world, that the value their peers bring to the world is, you know, the things that they can do to make the world more beautiful, whether that is create art or, you know, someone's really great at math or, you know, the things that they're passionate about, their strengths, their talents. I think we have to teach young people to celebrate those things in one another. I do think we have to be careful because again, we're not robots. So it's not as if the only thing we offer to the world is what we can produce for the world. You know, it's not enough to say that, oh, if you're a really talented writer, then the world can ever only see you as a talented writer. They can't see the full breadth of your experience. And and I do think that art is a really beautiful way for us to share some of those things, right? That someone like Charles may decide that he wants to make a piece of art that talks about his childhood story, because that's part of who he is. That's part of what helped shape him into the man he became. And so maybe part of his art becomes sharing that story. And I long for a world where Charles choosing to share that story or an artist choosing to share that story of what it was like to be them in the world, what it was like to be a young person, doesn't disqualify them because of something they can't change about themselves. So I think we do have to celebrate each other. We have to celebrate the value we bring. We have to celebrate each other's talents. And I think there's a way to do that without reducing ourselves to simply chat GPT in a suit and that we're just the one talent that we have and that's all the world can see us as. Yeah, and I, I'm not saying you have to see, everybody's got to see that, but I think if, if people can look at people like that and let that lead, then whatever comes with it, comes with it. And kind of switching gears a little bit, you said when this thing happened at the Pulse nightclub, what was that like for you? Listen, there's no way to describe what that experience feels like. You never really prepare yourself to go to your neighborhood bar and have a drink with your friends only to be hours later calling their parents, telling them that their children are never coming home. You never prepare for that moment when you you know, go out to the club, the place you've been to so many times before, and your friends are hours later being zipped up into a body bag. You just don't prepare for that. And it turns the world on its head. And I think that becomes even more intense when the tragedy is so public and your 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 healing becomes public your grief becomes public the community's restructuring becomes public as you all learn to navigate it together the world is not only watching it happen they're talking about it right and they're feeding it through all of these other lenses that make sense for them i watched people feed it through political lenses that you know they wanted to talk about how it would play in a presidential election cycle i watched people put it through the lenses of their own experiences. So that all was very difficult, obviously, to go through. It's the hardest day of my life, maybe tied with my best friend's funeral. That that day was also very, very difficult for me. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We keep a lot of emotions bundled up inside in life, and sometimes we got to talk to people. I witness the benefits with my own two eyes. I have a close friend that was struggling with depression and felt like she had no one she could consistently talk to because of her busy schedule. She was matched with a therapist through BetterHelp. After several months of sessions, I've seen a tremendous change in her personality and in her life. If you're needing therapy and and want to get some of those things off your chest, it's entirely online and designed to conveniently work around your schedule and empower you to be the best version of yourself. Just fill out a questionnaire and they will align you with the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash unimpressed today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash unimpressed. And I've often said that in the wake of the, the tragedy, I don't feel like I'm necessarily the protagonist in my own story. I think my best friends have that honor and I'm the storyteller. I'm, I'm left behind to make sure that they matter, not just because of how they died, but because of how they lived, the beautiful things they offered to the world. My best friend was a master of clinical psychology, and he was so good at stitching people together. He brought communities together all the time. He was the best at, you know, creating a friend group that on its face might surprise people. And then once you got to know us, you realize just how much we all have in common. So I have always felt over the last seven plus years that it's been my duty to help bring that part of my best friend to life to make sure that that's never forgotten. And so while the the tragedy itself was incredibly difficult and challenging, and hangs with me every single day. So too does the beautiful life and legacy of my best friend. When this happened, were were you and your best? You know, were y'all close? Or I mean, in the in the in the club, were y'all near each other? Or? The club was not overly large, but uh, just before the shooting started, we had parted ways. I was going to the bathroom, and he was finishing a dance with his partner, his his boyfriend. And it was, you know, while I was in the bathroom that the shooting broke out. When I was in college, I mean, I loved the community. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm married, got, got a girl. But when I was in college, I loved the community because those were, you know, those were the places that were open on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, where you go have, you need to have a good time. You go hang out. I've been in, in those places and, and, and being there and just thinking about somebody showing up and firing a gun. The community is pretty, in their own environment, they're pretty loving and cool and have a good time and everybody's open and everybody actually talks, you know, I don't, I don't know when they don't talk about that more out there in the public. That should be something that should be recognized. But after this incident happened at the Pulse nightclub, you go from Starbucks till now. I mean, you sound like a politician. You talk well, you're, you're good on camera. Is that such a hit on your psyche so much just gave you this driving force that, hey, this is where I want to go. This is what drove you to go down the road you're going now? Well, I'll tell you a, a quick story about what inspired me to take action. Because there were, honestly, the, the couple of days after Pulse, the week after Pulse, I didn't know if the next day was worth living for anymore. I mean, my best friends were everything to me. They were my chosen family. They were, you know, they were my brothers. And losing them in that way crushed me. I didn't really understand what heartbreak meant until we got the call that they weren't going to come home. 
And so I wondered a lot about what the future would look like. I wondered what it would be like to live without them. I, you know, had these horrible nightmares about going off and getting married and having children and retiring and, and them not being there to experience any of those things. And then we got to six days after the shooting and we had a funeral service for my best friend, Drew. And his mom asked me to be a pallbearer. And as I was pushing the casket down the aisle, I found myself holding on to it really tightly. And it's because I didn't want to let go of my best friend until I'd found the right words to say goodbye. So we got to the front of the church and I looked down and I made Drew a very quiet promise. I promised him that I would never stop fighting for a world that he would be proud of because he had given me so much. He taught me to be myself. He taught me to be proud of who I am. He taught me to tap into my talents, the things that I have, off have to offer the world. He taught me confidence and self-love. And I knew that if he were still here, he would continue to do that work for everyone else, that he would continue to fight for a world that all of us can be so proud to be a part of. And it was really that promise to Drew that changed everything for me. Even though I continued to work at Starbucks for some time after that, I was constantly driven by this thing underneath it that you've got to keep fighting. You've got to keep working so that the next generation of young people can experience more love and compassion and kindness in the world. And so I started volunteering here and there. We launched the Drew Project, which is a youth organization, gives uh, higher education scholarships in honor of my best friend. Was really excited about that work. Started volunteering with Equality Florida, which is the organization I work for now. And then come about 2019, that had just consumed me. I mean, I was doing every day that I was not working, every weekend, every after work activity was focused on on this work that I was volunteering for. And so I got a call from the executive director of the organization. She said, what do you think about getting off the sideline and doing this work full time? I made a career change. And now for the last, gosh, four years, I've been full time in the work of advocacy politics. I am not an elected official, although I spend a lot of time around elected officials doing political work. So thank you. And that, that's very kind of you. And I think what motivated me and what continues to motivate me today is that commitment to seeing through a world that I think my best friend would be proud of. Well, one thing you said there, and I've, I've talked to a couple of different self-help people, and I, I have these rationales about psychology of people, and I think it's a natural thing. I'm able to rationale to things together, and you think about science. And I, I say this a lot of times on these shows is you think about science, science is a one-lane highway. And just keying the word self-love, what a lot of people don't realize is and this was lead to the self-love thing is, you know, when we're born, obviously we bring a lineage to the table. We, we have work percentage makeup of something. We're in an environment that has an effect on who you are. So you start growing up and, you know, your subconscious is being programmed, right? And whatever you experience, right? The percentage is already made. That's who you are. It doesn't change. I don't even know why there's an argument about that because I don't think you can change who you are and what you are. So, as you're going through and you're experiencing these different reactions from different people. So you start developing this, uh, you know, this programming of your subconscious. And then later in life, at some point you will respond to things with your unconscious bias. When you're going through this programming of your subconscious, however heavy that is, that really causes people a hard time getting to consciousness, right? Because this programming and what they experience. And when you talk about self-love, a lot of people don't realize through this programming, especially if you were, you know, growing up and you knew you were gay as a kid, people use the love, the self-love thing as a commodity. Our parents do, 
our friends do. You know, it's like they want to give it to you one minute, but if they think you're doing something bad, they take it away. Did you ever experience anything like that growing up? Yeah, 100. I, I appreciate that perspective. And, you know, part, so I wrote a book titled A Place for Us. It's a, a memoir and it is, you know, it's interesting because when I was pitching it to publishers, one of the first questions they asked is, you know, is it a book about Pulse? And if it is, why do you need 200 plus pages to write a book about something you've talked about so frequently? And my answer to them was kind of, it's kind of a book about Pulse, but I don't know if you can really understand Pulse the event if you don't fully understand Pulse the space and spaces like it, as you talked about, you know, being with a community on a Monday night and feeling like there's love and acceptance and inclusion in that space. I wanted to get to the core of why that is and why it was so important. And so I took people back to the very beginning, childhood, growing up. I lost my mom at a really young age. I was just 11 when she passed away from cancer. And part of one of the explorations of this book is this idea of discovering unconditional love for the first time and the way that can be jarring when love so often feels conditional as a young person, right? That it's, as you mentioned, it's like it's there if you're doing the right thing. It's not there if you're not doing the right thing. And, and sometimes for people, and certainly this was my experience, not doing the right thing can be something you can't change about yourself, right? There was, uh, there were so many times where I was deeply worried, and rightfully so in some cases, that that love would dissipate, or I wouldn't get to experience it as much if I was honest about who I was. The fact that, you know, I was going to grow up to fall in love with a man and not a woman, that that might sever ties between me and people that I loved very deeply. And in some cases, that's true. In some cases, they were not able to get past that. And in other cases, it took them a little bit longer. They just didn't quite understand it, but they went on a journey. But ultimately, it was my best friend, Drew, with whom I experienced, I think, for the first time, that idea of you know, uncommodified, unconditional love and an insistence that I share that same unconditional love with myself. Because I think, as you mentioned, when you're young and you're impressionable and you're building your subconscious, if you experience love in a conditional way or you fear that love will be conditional for you, I think you then reflect that on yourself and love for yourself becomes conditional on whether or not you achieve that thing or, you know, or you see yourself as attractive that week or all of these other sort of obstacles you put in the way of loving yourself. And so again, part of this book for me was about exploring the idea of learning to love oneself unconditionally without commodity behind it, that it really is an exercise in, uh, in forgiveness, in grace in confidence. Um, and I, those are all things that my best friend gave me access to that I'm still learning to be good at today, but I think were really important themes for me when I sat down to pen the book. What's your anticipation of the book and what, what do you, where do you go from here? Writing a book is, is very, it's an interesting process because first of all, there's the fear that no one will ever read it. And so you stay up late at night worrying like, oh, I'm going to put all these words on paper and no one will ever buy it. And you go through that sort of process. And then there's the process of like learning how to write a book. And that is very challenging as well. It's one thing to write an article. It's a totally different process to write a book. And so, you know, I think when I, when I got through all of those things and I worked through all of the emotions of writing the book, I started to think about what kind of impact I wanted it to have. And I really want the book to do a couple of things. Number one, it was very cathartic for me. I wanted it to be a process for me to talk about things from beginning to end. So often I get to have great conversations like this one, but we only have a short time together. And so I can't begin to really investigate 
and explore some of the bigger, broader themes that have been on my mind. Uh, and so this book gave me an opportunity to do that. And then in terms of how I hope it's perceived by others or the impact I hope it has on others, someone asked me at the very beginning of this process, you know, books are often like mirrors and windows. How do you see your book in that context? And my hope is that it, it, it serves both purposes, that it is a mirror in some ways to people who might have similar experiences to me, whether that is identity-based or simply someone who's you know gone through grief before, someone who's lost someone they love very much before, someone who has you know tried to discover purpose in, in the face of great tragedy. All of these things, I think, are themes that people can relate to. And I want them to see their journeys reflected back at them. I want them to to be able to go on that cathartic journey with me as well. And I hope that the book serves as a mirror for people into lives they may have never experienced before, into stories they may never have considered before, into those that they may not understand today, but but yearn to understand and love more deeply. It's my hope that that's the impact the book has. I hope lots of people read it, for sure. But at the very least, I hope those that do allow themselves to be vulnerable and honest in quiet reflection while they read it. And I hope it opens hearts and minds. And certainly, I hope it opens up people to learn to love themselves more deeply. And have you had any type of issues with PTSD or anything like that after going through this? Yeah, my mental health has been also a journey. I'm really grateful to have a great therapist uh, who is there for me. I, I highly recommend mental health resources, paramount to my healing. I certainly recommend people access them if they can. But yes, I've, I've struggled with PTSD in particular. I'm very lucky not to have experienced some of, I think, the more extreme symptoms of PTSD. Uh, I can still, you know, move and function in public spaces. I don't, you know, I, I go out to the bar and have a drink with my friends. I'm, I'm still um, capable of doing that. And I'm very, I feel very grateful and privileged to be able to do that. Um, the way that for me it has manifested most intensely is that I, I still have trouble sleeping. I have uh, nightmares that are difficult to shake. Again, my therapist has been helpful. We've you know tried a few different things, I think, that have gotten me in a pretty good place. But um, yeah, insomnia has been one of those symptoms that has been really difficult for me to shake over the last seven years. Well, hopefully that gets better. Maybe you should try some plant medicine. Yeah, I, I, don't, mind, I don't mind a little natural uh, remedy once in a while. <laughs> You know what I mean? I mean, sometimes you can wash away things. I mean, I've done it. I went through a depression and I did a journey. And after I did that, I tapped into something else. I don't know what I tapped into, but things got better from that point on. So I don't, and I don't think sometimes uh, people talk about that either. But if we, if we want to find the book, where do we, where do we get the book at? Yeah. Thank you. You can find the book anywhere you like to enjoy books. It's of course on Amazon. Uh, it's on bookshop.org if you want to order from a local bookstore, Barnes & Noble, Target, online. The book is titled A Place for Us, a memoir. It's by Brandon J. Wolf. And my only request is if you get a copy, I just I want to hear what you think. I think it's been a very um, precise conversation and informational conversation. So hopefully everybody can learn something from this. And I appreciate you coming on the show. This has been Brandon Wolf, one of the Pulse nightclub survivors, and I'm John Edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bain Productions. Mm -hmm.